0: Hello there. You're listening to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call, and Busted makes me feel good. Hey, don't forget to check out the website, howgooditis.com, where you can find some stuff that I found interesting and some other things that don't necessarily uh, fit well into the podcast. And... Go follow and like the show's Facebook page, which has some other stuff that'll keep everybody busy. You can find that over at Facebook.com slash How Good It Is Pod. You know, the show is still, still at number four on Podcast Republic's list of featured podcasts. I don't know what it's going to take to get to number one, but I am very grateful for the support. Podcast Republic is the app that does all the cool stuff first. Find it for free at the Google Play Store, or you can follow the link at my website. You know, by many accounts, it was going to take a lot of things to come together in just the right way at just the right time for the film Ghostbusters to become a success. And one of those things was the theme song. But let's start briefly with the movie. By the early 1980s, the original cast of Saturday Night Live had started to make the move from television into films. And while John Belushi, Chevy Chase, and Bill Murray were experiencing success in front of the camera, well, Dan Aykroyd was doing a little bit better behind it, especially as a writer. Now remember, he was the creative force behind the Coneheads and the Blues Brothers. And by 1982 or 3, agent Michael Ovitz said in an interview with Vanity Fair... That they probably had about 10 different ideas generated by Dan Aykroyd in some stage of development. Aykroyd was pretty well known as someone who was interested in parapsychology, and he's quoted in the same Vanity Fair article as saying that he wanted to devise a system to trap ghosts and then marry it to the old ghost movies of the past. He noted that nearly every comedy team back then did a horror movie. They won't chase us anymore. And another thing, Mr. Chick Young, the next time that I tell you that I saw something when I saw it, you believe me that I saw it. All oh, relaxed. Now that we've seen the last of Dracula, the Wolfman, and the Monster, there's nobody to frighten us anymore. Oh, that's too bad. I was hoping to get in on the excitement. Who said that? Allow me to introduce myself. I'm the Invisible Man. <laughs> <laughs> And so, Ackroyd was inspired to start writing on a comedy uh, horror screenplay. Now, the movie was originally written uh, to star Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. Unfortunately, Belushi died of a drug overdose in 1982 while Ackroyd was still working on it. Uh, He showed the script to uh, director Ivan Reitman, who really liked it, but who also thought it was a very complicated story. In the first draft, it, it was much darker. It took place in the future and on several different planets or planes of existence. And anyway, but there were some elements that, that did make it onto the big screen, including the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, and uh, that what would ultimately become the Ghostbusters logo, the ghost inside the circular no sign. Uh, Ovitz brought the script to Columbia Pictures and Chairman Frank Price, and Price bought the product based on a budget of $25 million, which Ivan Reitman had completely conjured out of thin air. But a comedy at that time, $25 million was a huge amount of money, at least in the eyes of some of the higher-ups at Columbia Pictures. The film was slated to be released in the summer of 1984, and that gave the team exactly one year to write, shoot, edit, and create special effects for this complicated film. For the special effects team, that meant designing creatures for a movie that still had yet to be mostly written. As the film neared completion in early 1984, the producers were pretty confident that it had a hit movie on their hands, but Ivan Reitman thought that something was missing. Uh, he thought they needed to be to get a song close to the opening of the film, during the scene where Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Hal Ramis' characters first enter the New York Public Library. His original concept for the song... Uh, was that it would be short, maybe about 20 seconds, but it also needed to have the word Ghostbusters in the title. And the songwriters who originally received the assignment weren't coming up with anything that Reitman liked. Now the story goes that Lindsay Buckingham was approached to come up with a theme because he'd come up with this song. This is Holiday Road for National Lampoon's Vacation. But he turned them down. Buckingham didn't want to be known as a soundtrack artist. Now, Ghostbusters didn't have a music supervisor the way many films do, so the head of the music department at Columbia Pictures introduced Ray Parker Jr. to Ivan Reitman and the film's co-producer, a man named uh, Joe Medjuk. Now, Parker's producer, Clive Davis, didn't really want Parker working on a song about ghosts. Most of Parker's songs are about women and romance, and Davis didn't really like the idea of his star getting romantic with someone who has died. But ultimately, Davis was convinced to let Ray Parker try. Of course, if anybody asked Davis about it afterward, well, he took all kinds of credit for it. In an interview with the website Screen Crush, Parker says that he met with Ivan Reitman, who sort of explained what he wanted out of this 20-second piece of music parker was given a pretty tough project to work on he told author george cole that he only had a couple of days to come up with something and it had to incorporate the film's title in the lyrics he's quoted in the interview with cole well it sounds easy now because you've heard the song but if somebody told you to write a song with the word ghostbusters in it it's pretty difficult that was the hard part he said getting the title in the song But late at night, he found himself watching TV and a cheaply produced local commercial came on, which reminded Parker that the Ghostbusters in the film had also produced a commercial of similar quality. So he reasoned that maybe he could write the song as a kind of advertising jingle that the business might have commissioned. He put something together, and because he didn't want to be the guy to shout out the title, he got his girlfriend and a couple of her friends to do that part. But he played most of the instruments on the track. Uh, Brian Fairweather played guitar. Martin Page played keyboards and Ollie Brown was on percussion, but Parker was on another guitar, he played baits, he played synth, and he played drums. Martin Page, by the way, is the guy who wrote, or co-wrote rather, We Built This City for Starship, but we're going to forgive him that sin because he also wrote These Dreams for Heart. Anyway, the next thing Ray Parker knew, he was getting a phone call in the middle of the night from a very excited Ivan Reitman telling him that the music was really wonderful. In fact, Reitman liked the 20-second version so much, he talked Parker into writing a full-length song, and what's more, the song was going to be backed by a music video to go with it. Now in 1984, music videos were still a new art form, and there weren't a lot of rules for making them, so on the day they were supposed to film the video, they didn't even have a director. Reitman solved the problem by taking over the duties himself. The video's a bit of fun, and nearly all of it is shot on the cheap and guerrilla style in the sense that a lot of it broke some rules, and a couple of laws besides. During the video, Cindy Harrell walks into a house to find herself being haunted by a ghost played by Ray Parker. Now, nearly all of the elements of the house have this funky neon light look to them, but it's a simple trick where the effects people paint on glass, and then they shoot through the glass. It's a great and it's an inexpensive way to create the illusion of something being in a shot. The film Star Wars A New Hope makes use of several of these, and I can uh, post an example of one of them at the website. At any rate, Parker is dancing around and haunting Harrell, and clips from the film are being spliced in here and there. And then maybe a third of the way in, we see Chevy Chase in one of the windows yelling, Ghostbusters, in time with the song. Shortly after that, it's Irene Cara doing the same thing. And we also see John Candy, Melissa Gilbert, Ollie Brown, Jeffrey Tambor, George Wendt, Al Franken, Denny DeVito, Carly Simon, Peter Falk, and Terry Garr all shouting, Ghostbusters, at the right moment. Franken also appears in the house early in the video. he kind of pops up and pops out again before the world War cameos start. Now, to my eye, it seems as though a couple of the actors didn't really know what they were doing, but others were clearly in on the bit. So how did Reitman get this batch of actors to do the cameos? Well, for some of them, a few favors were called in. For instance, Terry Garr was probably convinced by Bill Murray because they just done the film Tootsie together, and it was Joe Medjuk who got John Candy by conniving his way onto the set of Brewster's Millions with a cameraman and a boombox. They got Candy alone for a couple of minutes off set, played the song for him on the boombox and told him, here's the song, just yelled Ghostbusters when everybody says Ghostbusters in the song, and they got him to do it in a matter of minutes. On the other hand, nobody remembers who talked Carly Simon into appearing in the video or even why she was approached. George Wendt remembers being on the set for a film called No Small Affair when he was approached by Ivan Reitman and said, hey, come join me in my office for lunch, and during the lunch meeting... Reitman played the track, and he did the line, and that was pretty much it for him. He didn't even get paid for it, nobody got paid for it. But that turned out to be a problem later on, because the Screen Actors Guild got wind of what had happened, and because videos were still a pretty new thing. And this video in particular, wound up being a big hit, while the guild decided to use it as a project for taking on the video industry, what with using actors for free and stuff. When said that much, not much came of it in the end, they all got letters saying don't work for free or you'll just be put on double seeker probation or whatever. But in the end, nobody who participated really thought there'd be any problem with it in the first place. But the other side of this is, because it was considered a promotional piece, nobody was paid to work on it, which meant that it couldn't appear on any home video releases of the film. That was the rules. So for a long time the video was in danger of disappearing altogether, even though nowadays you can find it in a number of places online. The video ends with Ray Parker Jr. dancing up Broadway with Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Ernie Hudson, all four of them in their Ghostbusters uniforms, dancing right behind him. Parker says he showed up on a Friday afternoon, and the actors were in town on a press junket, and they blocked off a chunk of Times Square and had them do the bit. Nobody's even sure that they had filming permits to do the shoot. In fact, Medjuk has admitted that there was at least one day of shooting the movie without a permit. And, of course, the breakdance that Bill Murray does was completely unscripted, as was Parker's giving him an assist on the spin. Now, the song was a huge hit worldwide, reaching number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and the Hot Black singles, and in the top ten on the Dance and Adult Contemporary charts. And it was in the top ten for the entire year. It was also a top five record in Canada, the UK, most of Europe and Australia, and even number one in South Africa. Now, a lot of people don't remember this, but for the first couple of years, MTV was a whites-only zone. If you were an African-American artist, it didn't matter how hot your song was, you weren't getting played on MTV. Not until Michael Jackson came out with Thriller and then Ghostbusters. Those were the first two videos featuring black artists to air on MTV. But MTV Airplay wasn't the only controversy attached to the song. When the record was released, Columbia Pictures and Ray Parker Jr. were sued for plagiarism by Huey Lewis, saying that Ghostbusters was too similar to his own song, I Want a New Drug. As it happens, Lewis is one of the artists who had been approached to come up with a theme for the film, and he turned it down because he was working on Back to the Future. But that meant that Lewis might have had a stronger case, even if it's just coincidental. Ultimately, the party settled out of court, and there was a confidentiality agreement attached to the whole thing so that nobody could talk about how it really shook out. Except, in 2001, Huey Lewis appeared on Behind the Music, that show on VH1, and he said specifically that he had received money as part of the settlement. Also around that time, it leaked out that he would received $5 million worth of money for part of the settlement. That led Ray Parker into suing Lewis back for violating the confidentiality agreement. I wasn't able to find out how that lawsuit shook out, but that's not even the weird part. Here's the weird part. Around 2004, the filmmaker said in an interview with Premier Magazine that they were using I Want a New Drug as temporary background music to help them with the pacing and, and, and they sent Ray Parker a scene from the film to help him with the theme writing and the clip had the Huey Lewis placeholder music on it. Now we move forward to 2013. Ray Parker sued EMI and Sony ATV Music because he was supposed to receive 75% of the profits from the song. And even though he figured it made about $20 million, his royalties never came anywhere close to the $15 million he figured he should have gotten. But the ownership of the publishing has gotten hazy since the original company was Arista Records. Arista got acquired by a company called Ariola, Then Ariola was bought by BMG. Then BMG was bought by Sony Universal, and that's why Ray Parker was suing Sony. Lots of opportunities for the paperwork to get lost here. But let me throw one more spanner into the works here, because it's also possible that Huey Lewis isn't such the innocent fellow either. Take a listen to this. This is a song called, oddly enough, Pop Music. 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 It's by a band called M uh, from 1979, and it was written by Robin Scott. It wasn't that long ago that some observant internet sleuths noticed a similarity between this... And I want a new drug. I don't know. Maybe it's all a coincidence. Maybe not. But you don't hear Robin Scott whining to anyone, I'll tell you what. Incidentally, when the movie was remade in 2016, or rebooted, I guess... Rock band Fallout Boy and hip-hop artist Missy Elliott teamed up to remake the theme music, which you can see clearly has a different flavor. Ray Parker Jr. says he had no input on the track at all. On the other hand, the 2016 edition of the soundtrack album also includes this much more faithful version by the band Walk the Moon. And that's it for this edition of How Good It Is. You know, if you want to get in touch with the show, well, you can always email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow the show on Twitter at howgooditispod. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. And finally, you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is to shout. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you then.